Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your watch care over us, the way you've brought uh, most of these people anyway, many hundreds of miles, some even thousands of miles, to this spot to learn more about you and the times in which we live, that we may speak up more strongly and act more vigorously for the kingdom of God that is growing among us as we wait for the greater fullness of the kingdom of God's glory that I believe is soon to return. Be with us now. May your Holy Spirit guide me as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a couple of books that I want to uh, uh, share about here at the beginning. Uh, one of them is, will serve as a good part of my presentation today, 500 Years of Protest and Liberty, From Martin Luther to Modern Civil Rights. It, uh, last year was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. And so I took that as a time to um, write some new material, but also gather some material that I published in Liberty Magazine over the last 20 years, and put it together in a special anniversary edition that asks the question that traces the rise and development of religious liberty from Martin Luther and the 95 Theses uh, all the way to the election of Donald Trump a couple of years ago. And I ask some important questions about how our heritage, our Protestant heritage, um, that all the evangelicals, uh, that um, uh, uh, Trump uh, promising to restore Christianity to influence in this country, um, is that the genuine heritage of American Protestantism, or is it something else? And so we'll explore that in this book and in this presentation today. Um, so there's another book that was just um, came across my desk in physical form about one month ago. Now, you're all familiar with the traditional Adventist eschatology of a conflict of worship at the end of time being the final test, and that conflict being demonstrated over days of worship, right? And whether Sabbath or Sunday, uh, the seal of God and the mark of the beast. And many of you are familiar with this because you've read the book The Great Controversy, right? And it is the scenario that's set out in The Great Controversy. And some people have grown critical of that scenario because... There's not much action with Sunday laws these days. Secularism has been on the rise in the West. And they say that Ellen White was reflecting what was happening in her day. Do you know when the version of the Great Controversy was written in 1888, there were Sunday laws pending on the, uh, the floor of Congress. And so some people say she was just reflecting the culture of her time. Those of you know, who know your Adventist history know that she didn't originate this prophetic understanding. Rather, she drew on um, Uriah Smith and his Daniel and Revelation. But those of you who really know your Adventist history will know that it was Joseph Bates, who was the first Seventh-day Adventist, in 1849 to write about the Sabbath as the seal of God and Sunday and Sabbath being uh, the last great controversy on the topic. But while I was doing my dissertation, I came across in electronic format an old, old manuscript, not 100 years before Uriah Smith and Ellen White and Joseph Bates wrote, but 200 years before, on another continent, a Seventh-day Baptist by the name of Thomas Tillam wrote a manuscript, more than 100 pages, where he defended the keeping of the Seventh-day Sabbath. And in that book, he talked about the last great controversy would be the conflict between Sabbath-keeping and Sunday-keeping. And he identified the mark of the beast as being enforced Sunday worship. That book hasn't been in print for more than 200 years. I found a scanned copy of it in an electronic database that I don't think Adventists had ever seen because this had never been mentioned anywhere that I had read. Well, I made a copy of it available on the internet and an organization based in England called Wilderness Publications has republished it for the first time here. Um, this is a, a, a rare and important document because it shows that it doesn't prove that our reading of Revelation is correct, but it certainly does respond to the argument that it was a creation of 1880s America or, or 19th century America 
No, another Christian living 200 years earlier on another continent read these same things in the book of Revelation. So I think it's a very exciting and powerful evidence and support for the Adventist historic position. Um, I have five copies of these that are available in the back afterwards for those that are interested. And the name of this book is The Seventh-day Sabbath Sought Out and Celebrated, and the author is Thomas Tillam, though the, uh, the full title, and this is a little bit disappointing, oh, they, they have it on the, the inner fly, The Seventh-day Sabbath Sought Out and Celebrated, or The Saint's Last Design Upon the Man of Sin with their advance of God's first institution to its primitive perfection, being a clear discovery of that black character in the head of the little horn, Daniel 7.25, the change of times and laws, with the Christian's glorious conquest over that mark of the beast and recovery of the long-slighted seventh day to its ancient glory. Right? So it was when they wrote the titles long enough that it encapsulated the whole argument of the book, just in case you couldn't buy the book. So there you have it. So... Speaking as a dragon today comes from a prophetic book and chapter of the Bible. My title is alluding to what chapter of the Bible? Revelation 13, there is a lamb-like horn, uh, lamb-like beast, um, with horns like a lamb, and it speaks as a dragon. And my question for you this afternoon is, what do those two horns represent in prophecy? What did our pioneers understand? Civil and religious liberties. Other people have framed it in terms of Protestantism and Republicanism. And my second question is this. So those of you who had Bible class in academy or in college, you remember that it was this lamb-like beast arising out of the earth, not in the middle of civilizations, but arising at the end of the 1260-year period, we identified with America, and we, taught, we were taught that it started by supporting freedom and equality and fairness, but at some point it would move to speak as a dragon. And what would that be? How would it manifest this speaking as a dragon? Legislation, Legislation regarding what? Days of worship and Sabbath. So we had in our heads that it was this lamb-like beast that at some point in the future would speak as a dragon. But did our pioneers believe that it would only speak as a dragon in the future? When did our pioneers believe that America started speaking as a dragon? Does the text suggest there's a period of time between it being lamb-like and between it speaking as a dragon? The text just says it has two horns like a lamb and it speaks, it spoke like a dragon. And indeed, our pioneers believed that America was speaking as a dragon even in their own day. It would speak even more clearly as a dragon at some point in the future, but they believed that it was appropriate to critique America even then for its failure to live up to its aspirations in the Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Did it grant those rights to everyone? And so, what was the first issue that our pioneers viewed America speaking as a dragon on? Can anyone tell me? Slavery. And we'll go back to um, this, uh, this quote here. Well, first of all, I want to make the point, the two horns were republicanism and protestantism, right? And um, Ellen White describes these Protestantism is shorthand for freedom of religious faith, right? You remember the chapter in Great Controversy on the protest of the princes? Protestantism came from that time when the pro princes protested against infringement of conscience. In matters of conscience, the majority shall have no say. And what is republicanism, though? It's a little trickier. The witch? 
So a representative form of government, a representative democracy, and Ellen White says it here, guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws, right? And the enactment, and so you might think of Abraham Lincoln's government of the people and by the people and for the people. It's a government that respects the rule of law, that applies laws equally, that isn't based on who you know, but on how you behave before the law. Separation of powers, checks and balances, and freedom of the press is this whole package that allows a representative government to function and that preserves freedom of all kinds and certainly freedom of religion. And Ellen White says, these principles are the secret of its power and prosperity, right? The greatness of America was based on its commitments to religious freedom and equality and rule of law through elected representatives. These are the secret of its power and prosperity. So a question I have for you is what would violate these things, these principles of its prosperity? Is it only Sunday laws that would cause a breakdown in this system? It's broader than that, isn't it? And so our early pioneers, this amazing poem that Uriah Smith wrote in the Adventist Review, 1853, uh, ten years before we took on our name, but at a time when we existed and the Review and Herald was already in circulation, and he talks about this lamb-like beast that arises with these two fundamental principles, um, more lamb-like in their outward form and name, a land of freedom, pillared on the broad and open basis of equality, a land reposing neath the gentle sway of civil and religious liberty, right? And I've only showing you three or four uh, verses here. It goes on for pages and pages. Lamb-like in form, is there no dragon voice heard in our land, no notes that harshly grate upon the ear of mercy, love, and truth? And put humanity to open shame, let the united cry of millions tell, millions that groan beneath oppression's rod, beneath the sin-forged chains of slavery, robbed of their rights to brutes degraded down and soul and body bound to others' will. Let their united cries and tears and groans that daily rise and call aloud on heaven for vengeance answer. Let the slave reply, O land of boasted freedom, thou hast given the lie to all thy loud professions, first of justice, liberty, and equal rights, and thou hast set a foul and heinous blot upon the sacred page of liberty, and whilst thou trafficest in souls of men, thou hurlst defiance, proud, in face of heaven, soon to be answered with avenging doom. So, was he for it or against it? Right? It's pretty clear. Slavery was an evil. Now let me ask you this. At that time, was slavery also a political issue? One of the most contested in our country. Political and economic, and it divided whole states and organizations and eventually our country. Did that fact, did the fact that it had a political connection to it stop our leaders from speaking to the moral issue? In the papers of our own publication, right? And in fact, speaking prophetically, that last line, in a sense, is a prediction, as Ellen White predicted, of some great calamity and catastrophe that we see in the Civil War, don't we? So our pioneers were not silent on this very important moral issue, despite the fact that it might be clothed with a uh, political uh, representation as well. Well, I want to jump forward 50 years. Uh, Uriah Smith is still the editor of the Review, a remarkable tenure that he had, but he's not the sole editor anymore. A.T. Jones, that champion of both religious liberty and righteousness by faith in 1888, he also is the editor, and there is an editorial that they are both their names, and I'm not sure who the main author was, but we know Uriah Smith liked talking about the lamb-like beast, uh, but a lot of this language is also seems quite um, determined, like A.T. Jones used to write. So it, it could have been written by them both. It was on the occasion of the Spanish-American War. America first started getting involved in some imperialist adventures so that we had troops in the Navy and the Philippines. Now, 
how many of you, more in the last decade or two, we've been talking about enhanced interrogation techniques and waterboarding and stress positions and beatings. Well, you know where the American government first used these things? Spanish-American War. First time we broke out the waterboarding. So there were some basic principles, our pioneers thought, of democracy, of due process, of representative government. We were acting in an imperialistic, high-handed fashion. And both Jones and Smith felt that it needed to be pointed out. And they said this. They said, here, we talk about this lamb-like beast, and there they name the principles, right? Protestantism and republicanisms. Republicanism. And then it speaks as a dragon and becomes oppressively cruel. This apostasy from the principles which at first are the character this is an apostasy from the principles which at first are the characteristics of the nation. For several years we said much, never half enough, about the apostasy of the nation from its fundamental principle, principle of Protestantism. So this is an allusion to our creating the Religious Liberty Society, A.T. Jones testifying before Congress against Sunday laws. So we'd been champions of religious liberty and Protestantism. But then he says, but very little has been said about the apostasy of the nation from its fundamental principle of republicanism. And yet this is a truth as really is the other. Just now the facts pointed out in that truth uh, are being worked out before the eyes of all the people and for months past it has been so. This apostasy is going steadily on in the presence of all. All people are interested in and are discussing daily the national movements that mark this apostasy. But how many of them see in it the word of God? How many of them see in it the prophecy? How many of them know that there is any word of God in the prophecy on this subject? So remember, the lamb-like beast has two horns. One of them is Protestantism and religious freedom. The other are the principles of republicanism. And Smith and Jones are saying, we need to be speaking about both of these important principles. Yea, how many Seventh-day Adventists are telling them of this and showing them this word of prophecy? Yet Seventh-day Adventists are here for that very purpose. Seventh-day Adventists profess to know these things. Our very profession proclaims that we know these things. Are you telling the people? Are you pointing out to them the true significance of the things which they all see passing as the days go by? And I'll, I'll take questions at the end of the presentation, I think. Uh, let me get through it and we'll have a discussion period. So, Jones and Smith are suggesting that we are not articulating, voicing our full prophetic message if we are only speaking about one half of it, right? That there are these other deviations. It seems to me this two paragraphs here could have been written about the last two years of experiences of our country, our many things, many fundamental facets of our Protestant form of government being challenged, at least in voice. Separation of powers, the independence of the judiciary, the fair treatment of all before the law, the freedom of the press. Are any of these things being challenged openly and publicly? Do we have anything to say about these things? Maybe not as much as we should. What about uh, Ellen White? I can't find a response that she gives to that particular editorial because it did seem very daring, uh, critiquing the government of the day and its foreign policy. But elsewhere, she does talk about the importance of both Protestantism and Republicanism to our nation. Notice in the um, Christian service, under the influence of the threefold union, which is apostate Protestantism, a, a renewed Roman medieval church and spiritualism, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. So is that talking just about Sunday laws and your religious freedom? Or is it talking about a whole range of principles that in fact allow that religious freedom to exist, right? And if you challenge all those principles, and if you just wait until the Sunday laws come along, well, you've waited too long, haven't you? Because the whole structure that supports that freedom is gone. She says this, Then we shall know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Right? So we've been waiting for news about Sunday laws, and if we'd been reading this more carefully, we would have known that when we see a broad and full-scale attack on these principles, fundamental principles of our nation, 
that this is the signal that the end is near. And then ironically, ironically, what happens when you undermine the independence of the judiciary and the separation of powers and the freedom of the press? Does that make America great again? Or does it, this national apostasy is the signal for national ruin, right? Are we as Adventists in touch with the times in which we live? Or are we enthused by an economy that seems to be doing quite well despite the challenges to our system? Or if we are thinking prophetically and biblically, do we recognize fool's gold when we see it because decisions are being made that undermine medium and long-term stability and security both politically, economically, and socially in our country. I think we are living in a brief time of peace and prosperity before these words come to fulfillment. Has this happened before? I would suggest to you that we have a deep warning from the history of the 20th century about the dangers to the church of seeing only half of our prophetic message. All right? If you read the history of Europe and especially Germany in the 1920s and 30s, when fascism began to rise and uh, Nazis and, the Hitler, and Hitler took over, um, how did Adventists respond to that crisis? Not well. Unfortunately, I wish it had been silence, but the reality was, at least for the church in Germany, many of the Adventists there spoke openly in their support and admiration of Hitler being the savior of the nation, of being a um, restorer of the national greatness of Germany. You can go and read articles on this. It's been well documented by Adventist historians, and it's a sad, sad part of our history I'm not here to judge or blame them. The church there has apologized for this. In 2005, you can find it on the Adventist Review. Uh, they sent out a statement apologizing for their praise and support of Hitler. And then this is the worst of it, and it makes me cringe. Uh, when Hitler and the Nazis commanded the Christian churches to turn over the Jews in their midst that had become Christians, we complied with that. Now, you may have heard of the Confessing Church. Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth and others, the Barman Declaration. It was at that moment where they said, no, we cannot do this. The blood of Christ covers all. And they heroically stood for their faith and for their Jewish friends, and some of them paid for it with their blood. And we should have done that, I believe, but we did not. And we didn't do that in part as a historian, I believe, and as a... a church his, uh, theologian, that we were thinking about another eschatological scenario. We were only thinking about half the message because Hitler was anti the godless communists. He was not supportive of the Catholic Church. He was a vegetarian and a teetotaler. So what could be wrong? And many Adventist soldiers were given Saturday mornings off to attend their church. So if we were just looking for Sunday laws and Catholics and Protestants uniting, this, if that wasn't happening, we said this is not our battle. And I think we profoundly misunderstood and misread the moral crisis of the time. But we would never do anything like that again, would we? Or would we? Is it possible to become so caught up in a focus on only one part of the prophecy that we miss the message of the larger prophecy that is playing out before our eyes. And I'd like to suggest to you that the latter is what is happening today. Um, what, uh, what has been happening, and I don't want to focus this on, even though the implications seem uh, obvious, it's broader than any one man or even any one political party. Uh, there is a movement in the West that includes Western Europe that is a movement of a rise of support for and enthusiasm for what I would call a populist Western Christendom, right? We see this in Europe in various places. It's triggered by a concern about the other, about outsiders, about people who aren't like us, whether they're Muslim terrorists from the Middle East or Mexican criminals and rapists. 
And I'm using that language euphemistically, right? I don't believe that. I believe that, that, there are, uh, that there are very few people that match that description and that the vast, overwhelming numbers of people don't match that description. And so if you actually look into statistics, immigrants and even illegal immigrants have lower levels of criminality than the general American population. Did you know that? And it's because they need to stay clear of the law in part, right? They don't want to be caught up in wrongdoing. And yet when rhetoric is used to identify them especially as evil and dangerous and problematic, it's not being done for real practical reasons, it's being done for political rhetorical reasons to gain power and influence. And it's a very, very dangerous pathway. It's happening in Europe. Various European nationalist groups play their Christian identity against the non-Christian roots of many, especially Muslims. Now, is Christendom and Christianity the same thing? So if I'm calling for a return to Christendom, should that be confused with a return call to return to true Christian principles? What is Christendom? So what? Christian kingdom. Christian kingdom? You look like a dog, you walk like a dog, but you're not a dog. <laughs> so it has a Christian facade to it. So we might, uh, this is the technical term that historians and others use for the formalized political powers of Europe that were developed in connection with Christian identity. But if you think about it hard enough, we often think, well, Christianity and Christendom, you know, Christendom carries Christianity, right? Well, probably not so right. And in fact, if you think about what Christ said about swords used on behalf of his kingdom, what did he say? My kingdom is not of this world, therefore my, soldier, my, my followers do not fight. And he took the sword from Peter. And so if you think about it, Christendom, far from being kind of a brand of Christianity is in fact a heresy of Christianity. It is a going directly against the teachings of Christ. It started when Constantine uh, caused Christianity to be the official religion of the empire and it was really fulfilled at the time when Justinian made it the only lawful religion in the empire and gave the Roman pontiff the authority to persecute and to use the death penalty against heretics. That is Christendom. So when people call for the restoration of Christendom, you realize that something different is going on than a call for a return to our true American Protestant heritage. Rather than a return to real Christianity, it's a call for a return for formalized, legalized Christianity, which is not Christianity at all but which is a perverted form of it. So you now, unbelievers and non-Christians are viewed as civil enemies, dealt with by force, imprisonment, expulsion, a travel ban at home, or military action overseas. These are lightweight versions. We haven't had full-blown inquisition like they had in the Middle Ages or, um, or, or uh, crusades. But we're coming close. Modern versions of the Inquisition, I talked about uh, waterboarding and stress positions and beatings um, being used by the Americans in uh, the Spanish-American War. But their roots actually go back much before that. And all these methods were in fact used in the Spanish Inquisition. This is where these techniques find their roots. They were picked up by communist powers and then uh, developed by American powers as well in our war on terror. So after 500 years of Protestantism, we have a clash of differing Protestant visions of America. And we saw recently in Charlottesville, there were protests and violence. One side says that America is best represented by a Christian tradition and culture, primarily from Northern European countries, and those who cannot adopt or adapt to these views and values should not come to or perhaps even stay in America. The other says that America is best represented by the kind of Protestantism that extends tolerance and liberty to all religions and cultures and its values are best seen in its commitment to liberty and justice for all. Now there's actually a third group 
course, on more of the left-wing side that says it's the enlightenment and freedom of religion that brings us our equality and values, and we need to keep religious people out of the public square and impose a regime of equality, including sexual freedom and rights, uh, for all people in all places. What does our history tell us about this conflict? Now I want to uh, take off my historian's hat for a moment and put on more of my Bible teacher theologian's hat, but still looking at some church history, to show where the Adventist understanding of the gospel and the individual helps us understand this divide in our country between the two extremes of the left and the right. Now I want to talk a little bit about a doctrine that Martin Luther popularized 500, beginning 500 years ago, and this is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And we have to understand what the world was like when Luther was born to see the power of what he did and how he began to make the modern world in which we live. This little chart has four items in it, and these four items reveal to you the relationship between, see this capital T at the top, is truth or God, that there is a God who knows the truth and will share it with humanity, but he shares that truth, both political and spiritual, through the institutions of the church, capital C, and the state, lowercase s. Now, I have put these two showing the connection between them. Church is the capital C because it's the most important member in the partnership. You remember when Charlemagne was crowned king? Who crowned him king? The Pope. That was, Char that was Napoleon you're thinking of. Charlemagne, at the beginning of this period, is crowned by the Pope, given his temporal authority by the Pope. <coughs> the state exists to carry out the edicts of the church. And who is this at the bottom? The individual, lowercase i, because the individual isn't very important, right? Because you are told what to do spiritually and politically by the pope and the priests and by the king and his, the aristocratic class. Now, let's talk about rights for a moment here. In this model, if you say the fundamental right is the right of conscience, and I believe it is, to have a claim of conscience against some outward institution, whether it be a political leader or a church, what do you have to assert? that you have some duty to a higher power, right, that conflicts with a requirement of the state or perhaps the church. But if you are told your duties by the church and the state, this notion that you have a conscience which can challenge or supersede the church and state is nonsense. Because the church is going to tell you what your conscience should think, and then it's going to work with the state to make sure that that pure good conscience is protected. But if your conscience goes wrong, and they called it erroneous conscience, even Thomas Aquinas believed uh, in, that conscience could go wrong and it would be erroneous conscience, but should that receive protection from the state? Well, no, because it was by definition in error. So there was no meaningful concept of personal or individual rights because this mediation. So you talk about uh, the whole period of the Middle Ages where the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Was heaven literally cast down to earth? No, it wasn't, right? It was still there. But the point was is that the mediatorial role of Christ was replaced by the church, which we often think of just as a spiritual matter, but it impacted this civil possibility of having rights. So individuals had no rights. And it was only when Luther said, no, this individual has a direct duty to study the Bible and pray directly to God, and this is what Luther does. He turns this bottom triangle on its head, turns the world upside down effectively. So now the individual has a direct relationship with truth and God through Bible study and prayer, and the church and the state now exist to support the individual as a citizen and as a church member. But Luther realizes there are these two realms, the spiritual realm and the temporal realm, and each uh, church and state have responsibilities in separate realms. And because the individual has this duty to God, 
the state should not use its coercive power to interfere with that relationship. And therefore, there should be a division. And Luther goes so far as to say that the king and the prince should not worry about heresy or which books to read and not to read. That is for the church to be concerned with, and the church should not use temporal authority. It should only disfellowship or excommunicate people. Now, Luther, for various reasons we don't have time to go into, moved away from this model because of the peasants' revolt and some other historical things that happened. But you've heard some people called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists, many of them were early Lutherans, and they picked up this model and continued to propose it as the proper way that church and state should relate. Now, you can see that the very profound... Uh, thing that happens here is the individual is now the possessor of certain rights because of their duties to God they have rights against the church and the state and if you have the right to conscience you have the right to freedom of practice of religion you also have the right to share your religion with other people thus the freedom of speech the freedom of association all these other personal freedoms flow from this fundamental insight that Luther provides with this priesthood of all believers. And I think there's no better way to understand how we went from the divine right of kings and the papal infallibility and oversight to Lincoln's government of the people and by the people and for the people than the fact that this view of the world, it doesn't happen in years or even decades but through centuries and you can trace it in the writings of theologians and political philosophers ends up with a world where there's a sense of equality between all peoples and of course we struggled with that and still do struggle with it but Lincoln could at some point say the government is of the people and by the people and for the people and it's infected all of our language in our community so even today it's not just church people who talk about being servant leaders but what is a civil servant? Why do we call them a servant? Because of this model here, right? And Protestantism taught that this notion of if you have a duty to God, then you had a right not to be interfered with by the state. And so there was this correlative relationship between rights and duties, and duties and rights. This is John Locke. Uh, whose ideas served as the founding philosophy of our, of our founding documents, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Now, there's one more chart. To understand the divide in America, you have to understand one more... Um, is this loud enough? I'm, okay. Uh, one more chart, and that is this. Do we live in a day and age when people believe absolutely in truth and God that can be discerned through the Bible and nature? Or do we live in an age when people believe your truth is your truth and mine is mine, but you know, everyone has their own truth, right? We live in this postmodern world. And that's captured by this slide here. Lowercase t truths. Now the individual is still important because only you can know what's true for you, right? Uh, but there are, I think limitations on the importance of the individual because if there are no overarching principles that bind us all together, commitments to individual dignity and justice, then very quickly the needs of the many are going to outweigh the needs of the few. So if individuals start perhaps appearing to threaten our safety and security, there's nothing that we won't do to keep them at arm's length. So you may know who Alan Dershowitz is, famous Harvard uh, law professor, who's known as kind of being you know, a left-wing liberal law professor type. But after 9-11 uh, and the war on terror began, he soon found himself writing treatises defending the use of torture against individuals suspected of, of terrorism. So he was very quickly able to overcome the importance of the individual. Whereas a Christian philosopher would say, even if you have a suspected terrorist, the use of torture invades the fundamental image of God and dignity of that person. But the left-wing secularist has no such overarching, principled, metaphysical view of the human being. Also, you still have a separation between church and state, but notice this. Under the medieval model, you had the church being a capital C, but here, what's more important, the state or the church? The state. And in fact, the church 
If this model is based on a kind of epistemological skepticism, a belief in relativism, who is it that threatens this tolerance? Right? Anyone who believes strongly in absolute truths or beliefs. And who is that? Those crazy Christian people, right, who have this Bible and a belief that there's a God who tells them what's right and wrong. And therefore, we need to separate church and state to keep those crazy fundamentalists outside of public influence. Not just out of the government, but out of civil, educated, polite society. So you look at all our major universities that are not public, Harvard and Yale and Columbia, where I went to school, hardly a religious thought can be found there. And yet that's not necessary because of the separation of church and state. They're private institutions. It's because they have a fundamental commitment to this view of the world and they think religion and religious ideas are fundamentally at odds with it and dangerous. So the separation of church and state that was promoted in the late 1970s, 80s, and 90s was really a version of this, marginalize and squash religious believers. So I can give you a little chart that shows you the history of 2,000 years in the West as well as the history of our own country, right? The medieval world from the 500 to the 1500s. But it also was Puritan New England, wasn't it? There wasn't a lot of religious freedom there. Um, it was this middle strand of dissenting Protestantism, John Locke and Roger Williams, and our constitutional founding uh, upon which our Bill of Rights was based. And then in the 20th century, uh, relativism and skepticism came to America through its higher education, and there's a whole separate lecture. We could talk about that. We don't have time here. But this is the world as it exists, existed in the 20th and the 21st century. But you notice I put an end to this on 9-11, because when terrorists attacked America, the elite opinion about relativism, all religions being the same and equal and maybe equally untrue, in the popular mind, that became almost completely discredited. And so the academics and the elites still believe that, and our liberal media still sort of operates from this framework. But more and more, people began voting and supporting people who had more of a view of the world of, well, this or maybe even over here. Because this view became uh, less and less supported and more and more people began to think about the safety of this view here. So you have our modern, the liberal media, putting out its views of life, the universe, and everything from here. And then we have a conservative media that is more here and they push each other further and further and further to the extremes, right? And is either extreme a safe place to be? One represents a medievalism that has a moral absolutism that we may agree with some of their morality, but eventually it's going to step on our freedoms. On this side, there's a lack of moral compass, though there's a great openness to various kinds of freedoms, though not freedoms that may contradict the secular ideological outlook, especially in its sexual and gender commitments. And so they represent a threat to true religious freedom as well. And we have a shrinking middle ground that represents the dissenting Adventist Protestant position, which probably you in this room know more about than most people because of your familiarity with reading The Great Controversy where these principles are largely set out in this way. Now, in my closing few moments here, I do want to leave uh, a good 15 minutes for questions and answers. I want to... Um, so this, should, this chart should give you an insight into the, the culture war that we have in America, right? And we should see that we can't just choose up with one side or another because both of them have fundamental problems in the way they relate to, relate to truth or morality or both. And I think that what we have seen in the last two years is a complete revolt by the common people against the narrative that the elites in our country were proposing based on this model. And we've had a backlash 
to a kind of centralized authority that will set right morality in our country and stand up against those liberal bullies. But I'm concerned that it's not really reflecting what our heritage and commitments are here with the republicanism and Protestantism we talk about. So we just had a um, Department of Justice release a statement. How many of you saw this? On uh, Monday, um, our Attorney General uh, talked about how the department was going to promote religious freedom. And there's a whole list of items, and as you go down those items, I wouldn't argue really with any of them. There's, there's 20 points. The problem is, like often, often Adventists in their prophecy, they're only emphasizing one half of the fuller message that they have. We have a free exercise clause and an establishment clause. The free exercise clause protects religious practice. The establishment clause is meant to protect against the government uh, promoting or endorsing religion. And it's good that both these clauses are held in balance. And unfortunately, the liberals tend to want to diminish the, on this side, they want to diminish the free exercise clause and make very robust the establishment clause. So we keep religious people out of the public square and everywhere else, and we don't protect their religious freedom very well. But on this side, we're going to make the free exercise clause incredibly strong and forget about the establishment clause. And if you read that list of 20 items highlighted by the Department of Justice on Monday, all 20 of those items are really part of the free exercise clause, and there's not a word said about the establishment clause or the dangers of empowering religion in ways or Christianity, because we know this is the main concern, right? Protecting Christians and Christianity. Though there's an acknowledgement that other religious groups have received protection, but we do that and then we don't protect the establishment clause, what does that give us? It gives us a country that will promote the interests of the majoritarian religious viewpoint, which is precisely what our prophetic outlook predicts. Ellen White has some important things to say about rights and duties. She understood this correlative nature of rights and duties, and she said this, the Lord Jesus demands our acknowledgement of the rights of every man. Men's social rights and their rights as Christians are to be taken into consideration. Very interesting statement. Rights as Christians, probably referring to religious freedom, right? And your rights of, of conscience. But she talks about social rights. So she acknowledges there's this broader spectrum of rights that we need to care about as Christians. What might they be? And I'm going to do a very quick little survey. I'm not going to read all the quotes to you of four areas that Ellen White spoke strongly to in her life and ministry that could be described as social justice issues, right? As Adventists, what social justice issues are important for us, or, or should we be involved at all? Some people view social justice as a competitor or a counterfeit to the gospel. But if you study what Ellen White writes, she suggests that the gospel has with it certain social implications to it. And sometimes instead of social justice, I'll call it biblical justice, but there's an overlap, especially the Old Testament prophets spoke strongly to issues of social injustice. And here's four areas that Ellen White spoke about in her day. Slavery and racism, poverty and economic justice, and immigrants, uh, family and marriage. And so I've chosen from a range of issues, so you can't typecast me as left-wing or right-wing, right? And that's a key to this, is to, is to make it clear we're not talking from the RNC or the DNC, but from the KJV, right? Is that, is that a good... And I don't... And, you know, and it could be the NIV or the... Uh, but, but you get my point, right? So even before the Civil War, Ellen White called for civil disobedience in disobeying the fugitive slave law. The law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master we are not to obey. Did this have to do with religious freedom? No, it had to do with a more fundamental civil right, didn't it? And why did she believe this? Because the slave is not the property of any man. God is his rightful master, and man has no right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. We are to obey God, whatever the consequences may be. So notice how she frames this in terms of 
the slave's relationship to God is being invaded by a man. And that is not right. And the individual has a right and a duty before God that you cannot get in the middle of. And if you do, if you do, then you incur a moral obligation to repair the damage that you have done in violating this natural right and relationship. Speaking of the newly freed blacks in the South, she said that the Lord demanded restitution from American Christians to relieve the necessities of this field. The Lord calls upon you to restore to his people the advantages of which they have so long been denied. It's interesting the language she used. She doesn't say, do a favor for them, be kind to them. It's restore to them that which is theirs, that you, that, you know, maybe you didn't personally take it, but you're part of a society that did. And there's a kind of a moral justice obligation to restore. Are we not even under even greater obligation to labor for the colored people than for those who have been more highly favored? Who is it that held these people in servitude? Who kept them in ignorance and pursued a course to debase and, debase and brutalize them, forcing them to disregard the law of marriage, breaking up the family relation, tearing wife from husband and husband from wife? If the race is backward, who made them so? Is there not much due to them from the white people? After so great a wrong has been done, should not an earnest effort be made to lift them up? And it's interesting. Is she writing to former slave owners? No, she's not, because no Adventists... Adventism was in the North, and there weren't Adventist slave owners. Those that were in favor of it, we disfellowshipped. It was a test of fellowship in our circles. So she's writing to whites who were not slave owners, but still they bear responsibility to help restore and, and, and set right the injustices. But she didn't just speak to slavery. She spoke about poverty generally. If you've read the, seen the book Hillbilly Elegy, there's a white poor community that also needs help. Uh, she talks about the economic systems in the Bible, the gleanings, the years of the Sabbaths for the fields, the tithes that were paid to help both widows, orphans, and aliens in the land. Uh, every 50 years, all land restored to the original family owners. This is a very intrusive form of government regulation to seek for social equality. Um, Without some restraint, the power of the wealthy would become a monopoly. The poor, though in every respect fully as worthy in God's sight, would be regarded and treated as inferior to their more prosperous brethren. This sense of oppression would arouse the passions of the poorer class. There would be feeling of despair and desperation that would tend to demoralize society and open the door to crimes of every description. The regulations that God established were designed to promote social equality, right? A very complex system that protected. And I have students that come and say, well, but that was under a theocracy, right? We live in a new age of capitalism where everyone can fend for themselves and, uh, you know, this semi-socialist system is, uh, it's communism. Well, it's very interesting. She said, if the principles of the economic laws of ancient Israel were applied today, they would prevent the terrible e evils that in all ages have resulted from the oppression of the rich toward the poor and the suspicion and hatred of the poor toward the rich. Such laws might hinder the amassing of great wealth and the indulgence of unbounded luxury, but they would prevent the consequent ignorance and degradation of tens of thousands. So did she say we should apply the same laws? You can't really apply the same laws, but the principles behind the laws you can make part of your system and your society. Adventists have typically had very little to say about issues of economic or social justice. We don't know what to say, but our prophet had something to say. Why did she have something to say? And did she tell us about it so we wouldn't do anything about it? Or did she tell us about it because she thought we might be intelligent Christians who could apply these principles in thoughtful ways and do something about it? Words especially relevant today where we have riots in our streets and angry young men demonstrating. She said such laws would bring a peaceful solution of those problems that now threaten to fill the world with anarchy and bloodshed. So did she just view our message as one of escape from this world, get as many people together to escape from this world? Or do we have something to say about principles that might be applied in this world, right? That's why the Parle Department is public affairs and religious liberty, but we've all focused on the religious liberty part, 
no thought or care often taken for the public affairs side, and yet we're overlooking inspired language. Let me just speak briefly about immigrants and immigration here. Um, there's much concern in circles about uh, law and order, about not breaking the laws, and I believe laws should be obeyed as a good lawyer myself. Um, but I do realize that the law and morality are not necessarily one and the same thing. And at times, laws require things or restrict things that inhibit other values and even moral principles. And we can't stand in judgment of everybody who's ever broken a law because we may not know what the reasons behind that are. And if you talk about uh, undocumented immigrants or illegal immigration, I, I don't believe in open borders. I think we have to have a, an orderly process at our borders. But if you think about the Bible and you ask, if you define illegal immigration as leaving or going into a country against the will of the civil authorities, are there any biblical characters that might fall into that category? <clears throat> maybe Moses, maybe the children of Israel, uh, maybe um, Jonah, uh, maybe uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus even. I think we need to have a little more nuance and care, especially in areas of uh, where we're dealing with people who came here through no choice or fault of their own. We talk about the dreamers. Um, and, uh, and as far as separating families to be a deterrence or a punishment, surely we can see the moral problems with that. Um, Ellen White says that we should view immigration as an opportunity sh to share and spread the gospel. In our own land, thousands of foreigners, the hand of God has been directing them to our shore that they may be brought under the enlightenment influence of the gospel. How many among us have been stirred by the spirit of the master to go forth and labor for this class of strangers who have been brought to our very doors through the providence of God, that his work might be hastened in the earth? Right? How many of us view immigrants as the providence of God? Unfortunately, there are many people who would say very directly the opposite, right? There are hordes coming sent to pervert and undermine the principles of our nation. Family rights. In discussing the increasingly common disrespect of older children, she wrote that obligations are mutual. It is the duty of fathers and mothers to care for their children. But when the latter refuse to respect parental authority and to observe the rules of the family, they should be left to bear their own burdens in life. It's quite a strong statement, isn't it? I don't think she's talking about tween, you know, 11, 12, or 13-year-olds, but as children become older and more capable of taking care of themselves, again, it shows this mutual nature of rights and duties and duties and rights, responsibilities and rights. To have a right, you need to exercise a responsibility um, to, to obtain that. Um, this was her justification for temperance reform, laws to outlaw the use and sale of alcohol, the home of a drunkard, she wrote, tells the sad story of the evil wrought by the use of strong drink. Wretchedness and destitution reign, and often the wife and the children suffer from cold and hunger. But despite this invasion of the family unit, the liquor traffic is legalized. Heaven sees it all. God keeps a record of the men robbed of their reason, and homes made wretched by the use of alcohol. Notice this relationship between rights and duties and the invasion of that relationship by outsiders. So parents have a duty to take care of children. Children have a responsibility to obey parents. Fathers have a duty to provide for wives and children. And when liquor is sold, it interrupts and disrupts those mutual rights and duties. And that should be illegal. It goes against the moral law of God. And Ellen White felt so strongly about this that she called our members to political activity on this question to the point where she stood up in the pulpit in uh, Battle Creek and said if the liquor interests, and they did this in Battle Creek, they made the election on Saturday because they felt that the Adventists would stay home and not vote. And she said, you have a duty to go on Sabbath morning and vote to get the liquor interests out of office, right? How many of you have had a sort of strong sense of imperative to do something about a moral question in your society? Or how many of us feel that's not something to bother us? Taking in Glendale to do the same thing. Okay. 
Um, for this reason, Ellen White involved herself in the nationwide movement of alcohol prohibition and the passage of temperance laws. The prophet of God spoke to the largest audiences of her life, 50,000 people in Europe, non-Adventists, arguing for temperance reform, for the passage of laws. Yet, if she had such an important spiritual message, why would she waste her time on these political matters? She viewed them as part of the proclamation of the gospel and its impact in the world today. Now, what about marriage? We don't have any comments of hers on the question of same-sex marriage because not such a thing was not even thought of in her day. But she does comment through another writer in the book The Great Controversy on the marriage changes that took place in the French Revolution. Intimately connected, she's quoting a British historian, with these laws of revolutionary France affecting marriage, religion was that which reduced the union of marriage, the permanence of which leads most strongly to the consolidation of society, to the state of a mere civil contract, of a transitory character, which any two persons might engage in and cast loose at pleasure. So really she's talking about no-fault divorce, right? You can marry who you want for as long as you want and then just choose to part ways. It, does, it doesn't sound that bad or dangerous, but what does she say? If fiends or demons had set themselves to work to discover a mode of most effectually destroying whatever is venerable, graceful, or permanent in domestic life, they could not have invented a more effectual plan than the degradation of marriage. So how did she feel about it? That marriage has a social benefit and is of social importance to the stability of society. So like John the Baptist, who was willing to speak out against the marriage of King Herod, even though it cost him his head, literally, Ellen White suggests that marriage is also an important civil moral issue that Christians should care about. Um, now this is my argument, not her quote. Decriminalizing homosexual behavior in civil society seems consistent with the freedom that God extends humanity to make moral or immoral choices. Right? You can't really even enforce laws of criminalizing homosexual practice to consenting adults. God allows us to make immoral choices. He gives us that freedom. We give that freedom to other people as long as it doesn't harm others, right? But that is not what the right of marriage is about. You may have a freedom to carry out an immoral act, but to say you have a right suggests that you can demand other people help and support and validate and promote what you are doing. And this is where many Americans went wrong. They thought it was about live and let live. You make your moral choices and I'll make mine. But when you make something marriage, you actually enshrine it as a fundamental value in the community that must be promoted and respected or you will be penalized in some way. And that is why we find ourselves with our schools and institutions and businesses facing penalties and difficulties in continuing to stand for a biblical and natural view of marriage. So I want to bring this to a conclusion here in the next one minute, really, um, leaving you with um, four areas where I think we can act as Adventist Christians today. And one of them is in the field of family, marriage, gender, and sexuality. It's the other institution from Eden, right? We think an institution of Eden from the heart of God's law will be attacked in the last days, and we've all been waiting for the Sabbath. And guess what? There's another institution from Eden at the heart of God's law that is being attacked today, and it's on the second table, not the first, so the government legitimately protects it. If you are a Christian counselor in California, I can give this speech and talk about the biblical standard of sexuality in California, but my wife, who's a pediatrician, is forbidden by law from providing assistance and counseling to young people who are seeking to live a Christian lifestyle and who are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction. It is criminalized, and now a law is passing that will criminalize it even if you're an adult, even if you're over the age of 18. You cannot seek professional counseling uh, for this. Basic freedoms to speech, religion, and how, much, how many of us know about this? We should be on mailing lists of Christian family and marriage organizations to work with others, as Ellen White did and our pioneers did on temperance reform. Um, this is the temperance reform of our day. 
militaries and weapons. I won't uh, spend long here. We're not a pacifist church or even anti-gun, but we are against the availability of weapons of mass destruction for citizens. There is a statement on the General Conference website opposing the sale and possession of assault weapons by civilians. This is becoming a basic civil rights issue for children. When I was in children, we did, in school, we didn't have to do duck and cover drills, and, except for a nuclear war perhaps, but, uh, but not for an active shooter. Now this is becoming commonplace. Immigration and refugees, both the NAD and some of our unions have released statements about uh, protections for DACA for dreamers. We have members, we have pastors who are working as dreamers. Immigration policy is complicated, and our church isn't going to tell you what immigration policy must be, but it will say this, whatever it is, you need to implement it humanely and fairly and morally, and when you don't, we will say something about it. And we said something about the separation of families and children. We helped our Hispanic young adults put together a petition and, and uh, make a video on that. And this is something that energizes the youth and the young people in the church, and I think is certainly consistent with our gospel mandate. Finally, Muslims. I think this is a wonderful time for us to be building bridges with this community that's under stress and de-stress. Attacks and hate crimes against Muslims and mosques have gone up tremendously in the last year or two because people feel freed by rhetoric that is aimed at them, that uh, demonizes them, that calls them out, and you have people who are more willing to be hostile and violent. Christians need to be there making clear where we stand on these questions. I think if Christ was telling the Good Samaritan story today, who would the Good Samaritan be? Samaritans don't mean anything to us, right? We don't have any prejudices or biases. I think it was the group that the Jews had demonized. Remember they told Christ, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. We demonize Muslims today. I think it would be a Muslim imam. And it would be appropriate because they're very hospitable people. And they have taken care of friends of mine for three days who've been lost in foreign countries. We are building bridges with a mosque near the Andrews University, and we have the imam there who's interested in coming and doing a PhD in the book of Daniel. We share much in common in creation, on judgment, on the second coming of Christ. And it's a wonderful time to be building bridges with people because they really need neighbors now. Anyway, those are four areas that I felt that we can do practical things as Seventh-day Adventist Christians on in light of our prophetic heritage. I've covered a lot of ground, a lot of ideas, and I have a few minutes at the end to discuss them with you. Thank you and God bless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org